0: This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers.
1: We were partnering with an organization that was taking an old building and uh, rehabbing it and turning it into a cafe, but not just a coffee shop, a place that was hiring and employing and serving as a support organization for people wrestling with addiction.
0: I'm Faith Saley. The impact of the novel coronavirus is hard to overstate. It upended life for everyone. It created a new normal full of new problems but it also shined a light on issues that have long existed in communities across the country. This show is dedicated to the stories of people making a difference, folks who are fighting for those in need against problems old and new, isolated and intersectional. Each week, we'll talk with nonprofit leaders organizing vital aid, US Bank team members supporting their efforts and those people whose lives they're changing. This week, our guest is Maurice Jones, the CEO of LISC, the local initiative support corporation. When we started these conversations, we all kind of thought they'd be about COVID relief. And they quickly became ones about race and poverty and privilege and everything. And what I learned by listening surprised me. I feel really lucky to be a part of these conversations, and I hope you will too. Maurice, where exactly are you right now?
1: You're talking to me from my home in Norfolk, Virginia.
0: And uh, is this where you're usually based in non-pandemic times?
1: No, in non-pandemic times, I'm in an airplane or on a train. So LISC has about 35 offices around the country and our headquarters are New York. So I commute to New York and the other 35 uh, places. Plus we work in 2200 rural counties. So I am usually on the road four or five days a week. Wow, before the pandemic, so COVID
0: yeah. has really put the brakes on
1: the oh, way yeah.
0: that you execute what you do, but it has certainly, uh, in some ways accelerated what LISC does, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I'm working, believe it or not, longer hours now. I believe it, uh, I'm just not on the road, I'm uh, I'm on. Uh, Zoom and WebEx and MS Teams and conference calls galore.
0: Well, I just want to congratulate you for putting on a collared shirt for this interview. I, <laughs> I, I can see you as we talk. Um, let's back up a second. What LISC, L-I-S-C, what does LISC stand for and what does it do?
1: So it stands for Local Initiatives Support Corporation. Uh, and I like to tell people we're in the opportunity business. LISC works all over the country, urban and rural, uh, with partners catalyzing opportunity, particularly in the toughest zip codes and rural counties around the country.
0: And they're tough because why?
1: They're tough because they um, don't have the assets that are commensurate to the talent that's there. And what I mean by that is um, there's talent everywhere in the country. What's not distributed in anything like a balanced fashion is opportunity, right? It's the assets that you need, whether it's great schools, great housing, um, great um, nonprofits or, or for-profits that can provide jobs. Um, those are the things that we work on. We bring capital, we bring technical assistance, we bring consulting services, we bring a convening power to places to get that kind of work done. So we help to finance affordable housing in places that don't have uh, a sufficient quality of it. We help to invest in minority and women entrepreneurs in those places where they have tough times getting access to capital we help to build football fields in poor areas so people don't have to travel miles just to be able to play on high quality fields we help to invest in the nonprofit infrastructure that serves uh, as a social services organization or the workforce development organization it's you know it's the comprehensive array uh, or put another way it's the ecosystem that we all need in order to maximize the talent that we have. Lisk is in that business.
0: I was watching a video on the Lisk website that really um, depicts what you do. And I was struck by both the breadth of it, but the specificity of it. In the video, we meet this woman who was in jail for 20 years and wanted to find a job. And she's told, she says in the video, she was told no by everybody. And then Lisk stepped in to this, this urban uh, beekeeping community in Chicago that makes honey. And this woman was told yes. And then, and then you're also helping a theater on the Lower East Side of New York City. So it seems very surgical what you do.
1: It's very local right? That's, that's where local initiatives come into play. So different places have different assets that need to be maximized or different opportunities. So you're right. It can range from a theater on the Lower East Side of Manhattan or uh, in uh, Brooklyn or the Bronx to uh, this beekeeping enterprise is in Chicago, And literally, this is an organization that has started a social enterprise that has people coming out of prison. These are previously incarcerated folks whom they are employing to you to make products from beekeeping and honey, right? Mm -hmm. And it is a way that this organization in Chicago is actually employing people who are coming back to the neighborhood um, uh, who need to get back or reenter society. So you're right. It's, it's surgical in the sense that it is uh, local and it is partnering with local organizations and helping them to address the demands, and most importantly, the opportunities that exist in their neighborhoods.
0: So I think of you as the CEO of LISC, who in non-pandemic times uh, travels all around the country I- identifying communities who need assets and access. I think of you as kind of like a talent scout. Like, like you see opportunity here. Like, here's where we want to water the seeds we plant.
2: It, but it also makes me
0: wonder, how do you, how do you say no? I can't imagine that you come across a community and say, nah, you're, you're, we can't help you. You're, you know, we, we have to choose somebody else over you. How do you do that part of your job?
1: So typically the, the issue isn't how do you say no, it's how do you get to yes. Um, and so how you get to yes will differ from one market to the other.
0: How? How do you um, decide? And I guess it's not just how do you get to yes, but how much yes do you give, right?
1: <laughs> the Bay Area it is, is an example. The Bay Area has one of the most challenging. Well, let me put it this way. Before COVID, the Bay Area had one of the most challenging housing markets in the country in terms of trying to produce housing of quality that people across the economic spectrum could afford. And one of the ways to solve the problem there was uh, we had to figure out how to build a private sector complement to what the public sector was already doing in the housing development and preservation space. So there we partnered with Facebook and with the San Francisco Foundation and with a host of other folks in the technology and the healthcare and the philanthropic world. And we created a $500 million fund to finance um, the creation and the preservation of housing affordable to folks who are at 30% of area median income all the way up to 150% of area median income. Right, Uh, And so there, what we needed to do was to develop a vehicle through which these uh, very, very uh, wealthy entities could place their money and feel confident that it would be uh, used well to pursue the housing uh, aspirations that people have. That's the Bay Area's challenge.
0: You keep using the word assets, and I also think uh, a closely uh, related word is is access. Right? I mean, I guess they go side by side.
1: Yeah, and I should be careful when I say assets. I mean, you know, what I mean more than money, if you will. I mean, what are who are the partners who can help get work done? It's usually some combination of local government, philanthropic folks uh, or entities, um, community residents, community-based organizations. That, you know, it's that collection of folks that I mean by assets. The other thing is it means land. It means uh, buildings that, um, for example, we, we do a number of in a number of places, we are going in with partners and we're taking old schools uh, or old hospitals that are no longer being used and converting them into uh, incubators for businesses or housing for seniors. Uh, so when I say assets, I'm talking about all of the above. I'm talking about people, place, place, physical money, all of the above. And, and even technology.
0: Re- I was I was looking oh, at your Twitter technology. feed and, you know, you can, you can create opportunity in a rural area, but they have to have broadband, right?
1: No question. It, in fact, if I were, if I could only do one thing in rural America, I would be trying to bring broadband to all of it. That is, you know, broadband today, um, For economic development is like oxygen for humans to breathe. You have to have it if you're going to get economic development. And the challenge is in rural areas, we have too little of it.
0: I think that is a real eye opener or ear opener, as it were, for for people to learn who aren't in rural America. We just assume you know, does a fish know it's in water? Like we just, we all live such connected lives that we assume everyone has the same access to communication and technology. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. So our job is to aggregate the assets broadly defined that are needed to catalyze opportunity in different places. And we believe that the most important assets for catalyzing opportunity are local, local people, local land, local buildings, local coalitions, local resources, local government, local leadership, that those are the most important assets for catalyzing opportunity, that proximity matters.
0: Do you think that that is a hallmark of what, well, clearly what not only makes LISC effective, but singular in that you're you're not this kind of monolithic nonprofit that doesn't know where your good intentions and good money is going?
1: I absolutely think it's one of our brands. Uh, It is a distinguishing piece of our core values and our brand. We it it we're called local for a reason we believe that that's that's the most important asset for opportunity yes
0: what's an example of an organization you've partnered with at Lisc that that you feel stepped up to meet the challenges of the community they were in
1: recently I was in rural Pennsylvania in a place a little town called tamaqua Tamakwa, like other places, is uh, grappling with um, the issue of uh, opioid addiction. Um, addiction generally, but definitely uh, opioid addiction and what's th- what that's doing to people and the workforce, if you will, that's available there. Well, it turns out through our relationships there, we were partnering with an organization that was taking an old building and uh, rehabbing it and turning it into a cafe, a coffee shop, but not just a coffee shop, a place that was hiring and employing and serving as a support organization for people wrestling with addiction. Wow. We invested in the, um, the rehabbing and the launching and the sustaining of this organization that was, yes, a coffee shop that was providing people, and everybody working in the coffee shop was someone who was going through the journey of of recovering from addiction, battling addiction. And um, I went and I got a, a, I got hot chocolate because I don't drink coffee. And they um, w- when I got it, they took me back to a little room where um, they basically had a gathering of about 15 people, and the gathering was about battling addiction. This had become a social support organization. For people battling addiction, this was unique to Tamaqua,
0: yeah, and truly a network and a place where I would want to spend seven dollars and fifty cents on a small Americano with oat milk and still tip
1: you absolutely would, yeah, um, and there are places like that all over the country that are you know unique and that are uh, a reflection of the particular stories of the people in that community, and the particular story of that community, that with partnerships can become, um, you know, much bigger than a coffee shop.
0: You know, you have like a birth connection to rural America, don't you?
1: Well, that's true. Yes. Tell I me, do.
0: tell us a little bit about where you come from.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was uh, reared by grandparents in a town of 1,200 people in uh, rural Virginia. I was a tobacco farmer for the first 25 years of my life. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a farmer. That the first job I ever had. Was feeding the pigs that uh, was in that were in the pig pen about thirty yards from my bedroom window, <laughs> whose fragrances i i whose fragrances I received every morning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and if that was your job, what did you get paid in, Maurice? What did you get paid for taking care of those pigs?
1: I got paid in the most important currency that anyone can get, which was the unqualified love of my grandparents who raised me, uh, who uh, for me were the game changers in my life. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got paid much more uh, uh, than, than the uh, work that, uh, that I did, that's for sure.
0: Why were your grandparents the game changers in your life? What did they teach
1: you? Well, I went to live the, with them when I was three months old. And um, I, they taught me a number of things. Um, uh, hard work was one. Um, perseverance uh, was another. I mean, these were people. My grandfather was born in 1914. My grandmother was born in 1919. They had seen a lot, right? They had lived. They lived at a time when lynching was still practiced. They lived through the Great Depression, through the Civil Rights Movement, through the Black Codes, through segregation. They had a cross burned on their front yard. They had seen so much, and yet they, uh, they lived each day with joy, uh, with gratitude, uh, with faith, and so um, they, they taught me that um, my grandmother used to say to me all the time, yeah, just keep on living. Just keep on living. Um, they, they taught me that you, you had to be resilient, right? You had to have the ability to bounce back from a lot of stuff. Uh, my grandmother would say, you're going to keep seeing a lot of stuff. Uh, You just keep getting up, keep getting up. So they taught me that uh, they wanted me to be nice. They wanted me to get as much education as I could. They wanted me to help people. Uh, My grandfather also wanted me to be a preacher, but I, I, and so I let him down on that end. But uh, otherwise, uh, I mean, the most important lessons that I've I've learned, I, I learned from them really.
0: I have a feeling you haven't let your grandfather down.
1: (laughs) Well, on that one, I did.
0: (laughs) When you come into a new town representing Lisk, what do you think it means to the people you're helping for them to be talking to a person of color who comes from an area maybe as remote as theirs?
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to uh, ignore that it means something to people when you show up. Um, and I'm a person of color, um, particularly because um, 66% or more of the people that we serve are people of color. Uh, and so when I show up and you have, you know uh, a, a, young, uh, a young man, a young lady, what have you, of color, and she's talking to me, at a minimum, we share a lived experience of being African-American in America, right? And that is an immediate connection. Um, And so, yeah, it it matters. And anyone who thinks that it doesn't, they're, they're blind to something. Right. And and there's no reason to shy away from it. It matters.
0: How often in your role as CEO of Lisk, do you have the opportunity to be face to face with individual people whose lives Lisk has helped change?
1: So before COVID every week, you know, part of the reason why I traveled is I wanted to um, interact with the people who we were fighting for. I wanted to walk through the neighborhoods in the Twin Cities, just to name a place now that's in the news, uh, and talk to the people that we were trying to be helpful to and to find out if we were really relevant. Right, if say? we were if we were really um, f- helping them to get the jobs done that they were trying to get done. Uh, so that was a big piece of why I wanted to travel so much. I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to connect with the people that we were ultimately trying to assist.
0: When you think about the people you've helped and the work you've done at LISC that you're proud of, what comes to mind?
1: So well, one of the things we do is we have a comprehensive sort of workforce development uh, program uh, we call them financial opportunity centers um, i was at i was visiting one of our financial opportunity centers these centers do three things they help people with financial literacy coaching they help people to access services that they need to be productive workers like healthcare child care it's usually transportation housing and child care and then thirdly they help individuals acquire the skill sets that they need to compete for jobs that pay a livable wage. That's ultimately what it's about. Put them in a position to get a livable wage job and to retain a livable wage job. I'll never forget I was talking to one of the individuals that had been served by uh, this, uh, this Financial Opportunity Center. And he said to me, I just want to thank you for what you all do. And I said, uh, "Well, um, you know, uh, we're tell me what we've done for you." And he said, "This was a young man. He was in his 20s. He said, "He said, man, I I spent seven years in jail on a drug charge." He said, "I came out of jail, and I was helped by one of your financial opportunity centers, and ultimately, I got a um, post secondary credential in welding." Uh, and he said, uh, now, uh, and he got an American certification, American Welding Certification Society uh, uh, certificate, ultimately. And now he's a welder. And he, what he said to me is, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm making more money than I ever imagined. he said, but that's really not the important piece. He said, I have, I'm moved every time I remember this. He said, he said I've got a seven-year-old daughter. And he said, for the first time, I can be her father. Yeah, that's what it's all about. That's that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, and you said he was in jail for seven years, so he missed out on that.
1: Seven years on a drug charge. And this guy went from being in jail on a drug charge to now he's a manager. Uh, and he's got a welding certification that will command good money in the marketplace. And as he said, he can be a father.
0: How important in this economic time, uh, you know, I'm certain individual donors are, are shrinking, right? This is this has hit everybody hard. Government funds. How important is it for donors like U.S. Bank to step in right now?
1: Whew. It is, um, it is invaluable. Uh, It is hard to overstate the importance for uh, the US banks of the world to step up at this time and to recommit to the kind of work that we're talking about that's needed here. Because look, we're we're gonna go through stages. There will be the relief stage just to try to um, keep nonprofits and for-profits from um, having to close forever and to um, help people to stay in their homes and to pay their rents. There'll be that stage, and that stage will go on for a while. Uh, But after relief, you've got true recovery, and then you've got to reconstruct. I mean, this is not a pause or an interruption in our journey. This is a reset.
0: This, yeah, this uh, isn't just triage. This is the beginning. This
1: is a reset. And so uh, it will be important that the public and the private sector and individuals and companies and philanthropic organizations choose again to try to address these issues that have been plaguing us and have been keeping us from being a perfect union or a more perfect union for quite some time.
0: Maurice, thank you for sharing your stories. It's it makes things so real and so resonant when when we know the the human lives that are that are attached to to donations to to the stories of need, right? It's so hopeful. And, and I just want to say, I, you know, wherever your grandfather is looking down on us, um, I I I do think you're a kind of preacher. So I, I do think you've made him proud. <laughs> and and to and to quote your grandma, um yeah, we just just keep just keep living, just keep persevering. Those were the messages we need today. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. Nice to be with. You.
0: LISC is one of the many organizations that U.S. Bank is working with to provide COVID relief. We spoke with the people who are leading U.S. Bank's partnership with LISC and other helpers across the country to provide urgent relief now, while also addressing systemic
3: inequality. I'm Reba Dominski, Chief Social Responsibility Officer at U.S. Bank.
4: I'm Greg Cunningham, Chief Diversity Officer at U.S. Bank.
0: You both work for and with u.s bank and and people hear bank and they think money and you're really in you're really in the people business you you you, and you're putting your money the u.s bank's money where your mouth is You, you are looking at people and figuring out how funds can change their lives and and all of our lives for the better
3: yeah i think um One of the ways that we're doing that is something that's happening across CSR or corporate corporate social responsibility, which is this realization that philanthropy is not enough. Philanthropy is great, but philanthropy alone will not address the serious issues that we have around structural racism, racist policies and practices, the real work that needs to be done. So one of the efforts that we're leading, and Greg is helping with this, um, especially in light of the killing of George Floyd, is really thinking about how we can bring the whole bank to help solve some of these intractable problems. So I'll ask Greg maybe to talk a little bit about that very specific work that he's doing that moves us beyond philanthropy to thinking about all the resources, human and financial, that we have that can help solve problems.
4: Yeah, um, you know, and, and Faith, you're right. I, you know, it's, we are in the people business. It, you know, our 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 mission um, and our purpose as, as an organization is to power human potential. Um, we just happen to use banking as the vessel to deliver on that purpose. And so, as Reba said, there's a lot of work happening across the bank um, to actually look at um, Many of these disparities. If you look at the racial wealth gap alone, um, the average white family has over one hundred and seventy-one thousand dollars in family wealth. The average black family has seventeen. And so, as bankers, you know we are prone to using data to make informed decisions. And so, when we look at that data, and you know, as, as learned people, you have to examine that data and ask why. And ask questions: Why, you know, is it because white people are smarter or more ambitious? Or, you know, we have to challenge um, our, our ourselves to really look at these disparities, to look at the data, and ask different questions. And what can we do? And what may we have actually in our own behavior contributed to it? And so, part of what we're thinking about and taking action on, to Raba's point, is really understanding how we can. Um, be a catalyst for economic revitalization in many of these communities. And it starts with supporting small businesses. Uh, It doesn't mean singularly, but it means that if we can help um, Black-owned small businesses become sustainable and scalable, that we can create jobs and we can start to build um, economic vitality in these communities combined with philanthropy, Looking at for our customers, what products and services and experiences can we offer that help our customers um, achieve their dreams. Um, looking at what our own workforce and understanding the representation of people of color and women and black people in particular, um, why, you know, why we don't have a uh, adequate representation of black professionals and senior management positions in our company. And this is not just US Bank, and it's not just our industry, it's across corporate America. And so the call to action is for everyone. And you know, two years ago, we actually signed um, a pledge. There was a CEO national pledge, a CEO commitment to diversity. And over 950 companies, including US Bank, has signed this pledge. But the pledge was essentially about um, taking action to ensure, at least in our own workplaces, And so back to the earlier conversation, what each of us can do is we can each take control of the situations that we can control. And U.S. Bank signed that pledge, which committed us to ensuring that every person in our organization took unconscious bias training, that we would have courageous conversations like we're having today and we're having tomorrow, a company-wide conversation um, hosted by our CEO um, in our African-American business resource group to talk about. Um, George Floyd, and to say his name, and to talk about privilege, and to talk about systemic uh, inequity, um, and how that's preventing us from fulfilling our mission. Um, Faith, I have one single job as my as the Chief Diversity Officer at U.S. Bank, and I'm going to give my boss, who um, has inspired a lot of my career, um, and given me the license to do what I do. Um, but my single, single uh, objective in my job, it's super clear. My job is to ensure that the purpose of our organization that I shared with you earlier to power human potential, that that's true for everybody. That's it. That's my job. That's it. It could not be more clear.
0: You have a great job. It's, it sounds demanding. I do. It sounds challenging. But
3: what a job.
4: Imagine getting paid to do that.
3: How did your partnership with LISC start? So um, I don't know when our partnership with LISC started. Um, I've been at the bank for five years. And for me, our partnership with LISC has always been there. And it's, all, it's, it's strong because we share common values. I listened as you talked to Maurice, who is an amazing leader and partner And when you listen to him talk about the fact that talent is everywhere, but there are gaps in access, that is exactly the work that we are doing at U.S. Bank. And we know we can't do it alone. So we look for partners who share our values and who want to get to the same place we want to get to. And then we say, let's do this together. So that's what our partnership with LISC, our partnership with the United Way, That's what those partnerships are about. They're about mutual respect, mutual goals, and mutual trust and accountability that we can do the real work and help improve people's lives. Can you sort of give
0: us a sense of uh, why it's so important for your work to be done at a local level?
4: The localization piece, it's so critical to our work because it, um, it means that we are in touch with real people and um, real issues that are happening for people on the ground. Um, I really love the work that LISC is doing and, and the localized support that they offer. Um, and I think it's really consistent with who we are as an organization and the work that we do, You know, certainly under RABUS leadership. And um, we talked about this earlier, our, our work is about, um, uh, it's about people and real issues. And I just have always found it critically important to uh, make sure that we are, um, we are connected to local communities and doing work and driving outcomes at the local level um, because it's not just about um, getting credit for it. It's about driving real outcomes and real outcomes happen block by block.
3: When I first started at U.S. Bank, we had lots of conversations about our grant making and should we kind of nationalize it, right? Because while you have to have local impact, you want to have natu- national reach, And so there were lots of conversations about how do we do that? And what we realized is that our grant making has to be local because I can't sit in my office in Minneapolis and know what the issues are in Kansas City. I just, I can't. So we rely on our market leadership. We rely on our community affairs team. We rely on partners to really help us understand what are the local issues and then what are relevant solutions? And, you know, before I started doing this work, I used to sometimes, you know, read an article here and there, and I was a little skeptical about, oh, you know, come on, these issues can't be that local, right? It feels like every community is talking about the same things. We're all talking about racism. We're all talking about gaps in education, gaps in, in, uh, in wealth and access to wealth for wealth creation for everyone But when you really boil it down to the people and the needs in every community, they are a little different and they require a really surgical approach to drive for the right solution. And what I love about LISC, what I love about the United Way is they are on the ground in a way that we can't always be. They're listening to community members. They are doing the real work of understanding what the community needs are. Um, And so that's why I think it's so important for us to be in local communities. U.S. Bank is local. The needs are local. Our teams are local. So our partners have to be local. And LISC is in every major metro market. And really importantly, they're in a lot of rural markets that are sometimes harder for us to physically get to. Our community banks serve those markets, but LISC is on the ground there. We've said it before, but doing real
0: good isn't just about donations, it's about actions. So we reached out to the people on the ground taking U.S. bank funds and turning them into positive change in their communities.
2: Hi, my name is Nikita Bethea, and I'm a graduate of Operation Hope's entrepreneurial training program coached by Andrea Rea. I initially heard of this program through a friend who was a previous graduate of ETP. The program consisted of curriculum and guest speakers that outlined the foundation, financial, and marketing tools to start and run a business. I appreciated each class, but had no idea how soon I have to use the information that was presented. I was equipped with the tools to anticipate and plan for threats to my business model in our first session. Granted, I did not foresee a global pandemic affecting the launch of my business, but I felt I could find a way to ride it out. I was preparing to launch my business when the first document, documented case of COVID-19 hit the state of Georgia. Like many others, I wasn't sure how to navigate my personal finances or business needs when this all started. My full-time job is commission-based, and I essentially sell high-end plumbing fixtures. Although my industry technically falls within the essential business guidelines, let's face it, our customers just didn't have the need for $2,000 faucets to stay afloat. Although I had an amazing first quarter, my sales dropped significantly in April. I soon realized I would need to take a step back and figure out exactly what I needed to keep myself afloat and how I was going to go about it. This uncertainty led me to reach out to my coach to inquire about programs or steps I could take to keep my business and personal affairs in order. Luckily, the principles of financial literacy I learned in this course helped me stay afloat. I met with my former coach, Andrea, and we reviewed my budget, ensuring I had an assignment for every dollar and that my bills would be covered despite low sales leading to lower income. After our meeting, I adjusted my business model to support a fully online offering, keeping my customers and myself safely distanced until it's responsible to meet in person again. The entrepreneurial training program was comprehensive and not only gave me the knowledge, but also the confidence to run my own business by ensuring my personal finances and discipline mimic the same traits in a successful business owner. Thank you, Operation Hope, and thank you to U.S. Bank.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.